Father, that song we just sang crystallizes the expression of your grace to us in the work of the Holy Spirit. I was blinded by my sin, had no taste for heaven's joys, did not know your love within and all the rest. And then your spirit gave us life. And God, that's what I want to talk about. The life giving power of the Holy Spirit. Because sometimes, Lord, we are nothing but a valley of dry, dead bones. But your spirit can make dead bones dance. And I pray that would be the case this morning through your word, by your spirit, for your glory, in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're in a series on revival called To Live Again. And for about a dozen weeks, we grabbed a spade and we've been digging down back to essential Christian realities that we must remember for revival. But today, we're going to move from talking about digging to actually talking about reigning. And I take that from Isaiah 44 and verse 3, where the prophet, God says to the prophet, I will pour water upon him who is thirsty and floods upon dry ground. What we're going to be talking about now is the work of the Holy Spirit in revival. We want it to reign, as it were, Isaiah 44, 3 kind of way. And as I've been spending really not just weeks but months preparing for this significant portion in our series about revival on the work of the Holy Spirit in revival, it occurred to me we really need to focus on the work of the Holy Spirit, not just in revival but in general. Because revival isn't some kind of abracadabra, hocus-pocus thing. It really is the amplification and intensification of the regular routine ministry of the Holy Spirit. So the one foundational reality I hope all of us walk away with this morning is that it is the Holy Spirit who gives life. All right? The Spirit gives life. And to see that foundational reality of the Holy Spirit, we are going to go to one of the craziest and coolest passages in all the scripture, what Pastor Charles just read, Ezekiel 37. It is the vision of the valley of dry bones. We see in this passage that literally the Spirit of God can make a boneyard come to life. Now let me give you a little bit of backdrop. Ezekiel lived in six, the 6th sixth century B.C., 597 B.C., he, along with some other Israelites, are carted off into the first wave of Babylonian exile when Jerusalem is captured. Now, this is, a, this is like a big-time bummer for this guy, Ezekiel, because he is in the priestly line. However, he's only 25 years old. You don't become active duty in the priestly line until you're 30. So he's five years away from actually stepping into his life's calling, and boom, he's carted off into captivity. But we see from the life of Ezekiel, just as a sanctified aside, bad circumstances cannot derail God's purpose for your life. In fact, sometimes he is putting you in those circumstances for his glory, as awkward and painful as that can be. Because he's now 30 years old. He is on the banks of the river Chebar, near kind of a refugee camp of sorts, maybe sucking on a piece of straw. And bam, he has an encounter with God that kicks off one of the craziest ministries you could ever read about in the Old Testament. For example, 
If you open up the first few chapters of the book of Ezekiel, you have this depiction that I don't know that there's an artist on the face of the earth that could ac accurately draw. You have this vision of circles and circles and wheels and wheels and animal faces and wings and all the rest. And then he has another vision. He has a vision of some women worshiping the false goddess Tammuz in the temple of the Israelite God, as well as men worshiping another false god. And then you have that very famous vision when God says, okay, you don't want to worship me, I'm out. And his glory lifts. Do you remember that passage? See, what was going on in the life of Israel is things were really, really bad. They were full of idolatry. One commentator put it this way. What happens when God's word becomes offensive to God's people? They pick teachers and prophets who will teach them something else. Teachers and prophets who say, peace, peace, peace. When there is no peace. You have that refrain all through the book right there. Well, Ezekiel would not um, give a tickling ear to the listeners, to the Israelites. Rather, Ezekiel kind of told the truth, which I think did not make him their favorite preacher. He probably did not make the conference rounds. He preaches about two very unpopular topics. Topic one, the idolatry of the Israelite people. They were looking for love in all their own places. And then he preaches about God's judgment on Israel for its idolatry. And he gives a whole host of really, really strange object lessons to depict their idolatry and the ensuing judgment. For instance, he cuts off a third of his hair, he slices a third of his hair, and he burns a third of his hair. I could wish I could say that's why I'm in the state I'm in. It's not because of that. His head was because he did that as an object lesson. Walking through the city, slicing his hair, burning it, and all the rest. You know what else he did? He had somebody tie him up, and he laid on his side for 390 consecutive days. Now, he probably clocked out every night, but he did that for 390 days. And then the next 40 days, again, he's bound up, he lays on his right side, depicting the greater judgment that was coming against the Israelite nation for their idolatry. Then you get to this one. I don't think anyone would ever try this. He is called to cook his food over human excrement, over poop. That's what he's called to do. And then probably the worst object lesson of all, God says, I'm going to take away from you the delight of your eyes, speaking of his wife. And when she dies, you cannot grieve, weep, and mourn. These are some visceral object lessons. And for 33 chapters, you have the message of judgment on Israel for their idolatry. But then in chapter 34, light begins to shine in in the form of hope. And that sets the scene for this stark scene of this valley of dry bones in Ezekiel 37. And again, I want us to walk away with the unmistakable reality that it is the spirit who does what? Gives life. Thank you, John. Thank you, John. <laughs> the spirit gives life. And, and if you just were to look at this text, you have the word spirit some 10 times in these, I think, 14 verses. Sometimes it's translated spirit. Sometimes it's light or uh, sometimes it's breath. Um, sometimes it's wind. It's, it's, it's all about the context. But ten times you have the Hebrew word ruach, which means spirit. And six times you have the, the verb to live or life. 
This is about the Spirit giving life. I do not have an outline for this text. Rather, I just want to take the text as it presents itself. There are three episodes or three scenes in this text. Now, in my Bible, and probably yours, that's denoted by three different paragraphs. Let me just quickly walk that and then make some application. Scene one, paragraph one, is verses one through six. And what we're going to see, basically the context is set in scene one, is that Ezekiel is set down in a massive, desolate valley of dry, bleached bones. Just, Just... Envision that in your mind's eye for a second, as long as you can see, as far as you can see. And apparently this ain't no small valley because verse 2 tells us he's led around the valley. Again, massive expanse full of dead, dry, desolate, bleached bones stacked one on top of another. Then in verse 2, God says to him, and thank you, Pastor Cleet, for your glasses. I forgot mine today, so these are Cleet-esque glasses. He said to me, the Lord Son of man, can these bones live? That's the Lord speaking to the prophet Ezekiel. Now, Ezekiel, you'll notice, he does not respond with unbridled optimism like, duh, of course he can, you're God and you can do anything. He doesn't do that. Neither does he respond with downright pessimism like, no, God, dead is dead is dead is dead. Rather, he just says, well, you know, Lord, But I think the question, underneath the question the Lord asking Ezekiel, is he saying to Ezekiel, do you know what I can do? Or rather, he's saying, do you know what I can do through you? That's maybe a question God would ask us. And when we're in a valley of dry bones, do you know what I can do? Or do you know what I can do for you? Well, it continues on, verse 4, he tells him, to prophesy and to say to these bones, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Now, don't miss the wry humor in this. He's telling him to speak to dead bones and say, O dead bones, live. That would be like you going to talk to a dead body and say, O dead body, as if that dead body could hear you, live. It is nearly, it is not nearly, it's entirely an impossible task. And then in verses 5 and 6, he fills it out where he says, I will cause breath to enter you, sinews upon you, flesh to come upon you, cover you with skin, and you shall live, and you shall know that I am the Lord, which is the ultimate purpose. So that's scene one, setting the table, desolate valley, speak to those dry bones, they'll live that they will know that I am the Lord. Now, scene two, which consists of verses seven through 10, Ezekiel then obeys what seems to be a fool's errand, right? But he does obey. Verses seven and eight, he prophesies, he says, as I was commanded, and as I prophesied, there was a sound, a sound of rattling bones. I almost thought of bringing in some deer antlers that will kind of rack together to sound like two bucks fighting. You can hear bones on bone. It's just a very distinct sound. He hears bones rattling. This valley of bones are starting to get up. And then as he continues, he not only hears that, he sees. I looked, he says, and behold, there were sinners on them and flesh and skin, but there was no breath in them. So basically, you have recomposed, I guess that would be the right way to put it, bodies, but not revived bodies. 
Verse 4, I'm sorry, verses 9 and 10, the Lord then tells him to prophesy. Now, I want to read these verses word for word because these verses are full of references to the Spirit who gives life. Verse 9, then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, there's the word, ruach, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, ruach, O breath, ruach, and breathe on these slain that I may live. So I prophesied as he commanded, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. Now this is quite a scene. These dead bones are now, I'm using a little poetic license, dancing bones. They are not only recomposed bodies, they're revived bodies. They're standing, a massive, great, great, great army, as far as the eye can see, this massive valley, formerly full of dry, bleached, dead bones, now full of Human bodies standing, a great army, as he puts it. That's scene two. Now, finally, scene three, the Lord gives the divinely inspired explanation for what this, what it is, an object lesson is all about. We read in verse 11, he said to me, son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Now, we kind of knew that, but he makes that clear. The bones represent Israel. Behold, they say, this is, he dials in on like their hopelessness. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. And what he gets to there is the hopelessness that they can feel, they're feeling. Because they're, they've been carted off into captivity. The hand of God is upon them. It's really bad. But I think not just Israelites 20-something centuries ago can feel that hopelessness. I think we can probably feel that hopelessness, right? We can probably say, oh, man, my bones are dried up. My hope is lost. I'm indeed cut off. I, we, they. We can all feel that way. We can all feel that way. But then, in verses 12 through 14, he again tells him to prophesy, and I summarize what he says. Two times he says, open up the graves, the graves will open up and they will be raised up and they'll be returned to their land. So that's, that's a near time for prophecy that Israel would get back to their, 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 their land. But it's also foreshadowing a great reunion of the, of the saints among the ages. Two times he says, I'll do this so that you shall know that I am the Lord. We're going to come back to that. That's very significant. And then he says, plainly, it will happen because verse 14 and I will put my spirit within you and you shall live. So how will it happen? Because God will put who inside them? His spirit. And then perhaps the sweetest brushstroke of all in this story is two times when he says, you see it in verse 12 and you see it in verse 13, oh my people. Doesn't that reflect the heart of God? Oh my people. Oh, my people, it's an expression of the love and affection that God has for his people. Now, stepping back from Ezekiel 37, I don't think we can miss the big point. What is the big point? God will revive and restore his people for his own glory. And how will he do it? God gives life by his, the spirit gives life. Would you agree that's the big idea of Ezekiel 37? And we could get a lot more into details. I just want us to see the big idea. 
Not only, however, is that the story locally of this particular chapter of Scripture, it's actually the story of God canonically, the entire canon of Scripture. So many commentators will make the point, and maybe you picked up on this, that there seems to be some references in the way uh, God speaks to uh, Ezekiel, seems to be some brushstroke references back to the, to the first few chapters of the Bible, right? where he breathed into Adam the breath of life. It's a reference to God's act of creation at the beginning of the world. God breathes into some dust, right? That's what we're, that's what we're made out of, dust, dirt. And boom, Adam is animate. He is a human being, Imago Dei. God breathes through, uh, through uh, the, Eze- the prophet Ezekiel into this valley of dry bones. And what happens to these dry bones? They become a standing army, a great army. Now, of course, there's a difference when breath of God was breathed into dirt, Adam came to life for the first time. Here in this object lesson, Israel, as it were, metaphorically, is brought back to life. But this is the storyline of of the Bible. The Spirit gives life. We go on and on. You go to Pentecost. Remember on Pentecost how the Spirit is, is poured out and he's like a locomotive, a freight train going through that area. They can hear it. There's tongues of fire and all the rest. And boom, thousands and thousands of people are literally brought from spiritual death to spiritual life because of the work of the Spirit. And we could go on and on and on. 1 Corinthians 15, a great chapter that, that just gives as much detail as you'll find in all Scripture of what it means at the end of the age when our bodies will be raised from the dust and recomposed and revived. Spirit, always existing, joining that body raised from the dust of the earth. He draws on Ezekiel 37, Paul does in 1 Corinthians 15. And then you just go to the last invitation of the Bible, Revelation 22, verse 17. The Spirit and the bride say, come. So I'm just just trying to make this point plain. That the Spirit gives life locally, Ezekiel 37, immediate context, cannot... I can't say that word this morning. I need the Spirit to help me say that word. Canonically, the entire canon of Scripture, all 66 books, the span of Scripture, the story is the Spirit giving life. But now let's take this to our hearts. Not just a story, you know, span of the Bible, Ezekiel 37. It's the story of us individually, personally, in our salvation. If you are a Christian, it is only because the Spirit gave you life. Now, you didn't know that. You were offered Jesus, you repented of your sins, and you turned to him. But I just want to tell you, behind the scenes, it was the Spirit of God working. John chapter 6, very, very hard-hitting chapter. That's how the original listeners heard it anyway, and we should too. Jesus says a lot of strong things, but one of the strong things he says is, no one, because they're like, oh, we don't want to come to you. He's like, no one comes to me unless the Father draws him. Do you remember that? And then he has these words, which are just a, really uh, an explanation of what I'm preaching. He says, the flesh profits nothing. It is the spirit that gives life. You go to Ephesians chapter 2. The Bible says the natural man is dead in trespasses and sins. We just sang about that, right? I was blinded by my sin. Had no taste for heaven's joys, Right? And that, some of you here may be still in that state. I, I don't know your heart. But then the Spirit gave me life. 
and opened up, boom, the word of God to me. That's called regeneration. You've heard me say that the Holy Spirit is the heart transplant surgeon of the Trinity focusing or whose specialty is in the heart, in regeneration, ripping out the heart of stone and giving us a heart of flesh. And that's why it says in 1 Corinthians 12, 3, no one can call Jesus Lord but by the Spirit. Now, people can say anything they want. I, I'll hear later today when I'm playing baseball, people say the name Jesus, but they ain't saying it in, in confession of him as Lord, right? No one can call Jesus Lord but by the Spirit in saving fashion. And perhaps one of the richest verses that highlights the crystalline truth that the Spirit gives life, it says in Titus chapter 3, but after the goodness and mercy of God appeared, he saved us, not according to works of righteousness as we have done, but according to his mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit gives life. And that's why in sharing the gospel, man, you're like, Lord, would your spirit move on that person's heart? You probably remember me telling this story. I have several times because it's so illustrative of the point that the spirit makes dead people alive. The spirit must make dead people alive if they would come to Christ. There was a professor of homiletics preaching. He told his class partway through the semester after they had written their opening sermon to go preach it at a graveyard. This guy's old, but he must not was old. He's senile. Who would preach to a grave? What are you talking about, professor? No, you go preach that sermon to a graveyard. They did that, and they're like, well, what's the point? And he said, that's who you're preaching to, dead people. And that's why you need to pray as much as you preach. Pray that the Spirit would give life, because the Spirit gives life. So what's the big idea that we're going to build on for the next several weeks? What is the big idea? The Spirit gives life. Locally, span of Scripture, individually, but now to the very point of the series, this is also what happens in revival. The Spirit moves in in a fresh way to give fresh experience of life in Christ. The Spirit moves in a fresh way to catalyze or comatose, to waken up those who are lost in huh, whatever, to stir up the sleepy. And just because you haven't experienced or I haven't experienced that or somebody hasn't experienced doesn't make it any less true or possible. There are many stories about revival happening. But what I want to ask in closing application is this question. If the Spirit is the one who gives life on all these levels, Ezekiel 37 the span of scripture, our individual salvation, and then in revival. If the spirit gives life on all these levels, how then does he work? I mean, that's a good question to ask, right? Like if we need the spirit to give life, then, well, how does he work? Well, that's a really big question. I don't think anybody can fully answer it. Jesus told Nicodemus, the wind blows where it will. So like you're trying to put lightning in a bottle. You can't fully explain it. But I want to stab at it. And I want to give us four applications that I hope we'll hold on to as we look at the work of the Holy Spirit in revival over the next several weeks. Number one, how does it work? In connection to the Word of God. 
The Holy Spirit moves in connection to the Word of God. In Ezekiel chapter 37, this great chapter on the Spirit giving life, we also see God speaking, right? We see the Spirit moving, but we see God speaking. You say, how does he speak? How many times does he say to Ezekiel, Ezekiel, you say to the people thus and thus, right? You prophesy explicitly this. He is telling Ezekiel to share with the people of God the word of God, and then the spirit of God will move. We're going to wade into the cessationist charismatic debate in coming weeks, okay? But I think this, this following quote is a good baseline to work with. I've heard many people use it. I've read it. It's been said that if you're all word and no spirit, you'll dry up. If you're all spirit and no word, you'll blow up, and not in a good way. But if you're all word and all spirit, you'll grow up. That makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, why would we divorce the two when the word of God was given by the spirit of God? And what we're going to do next week is we're just going to survey all the specific ministries the Holy Spirit has referenced to a believer pre-conversion, in conversion, and after conversion. And I think you're going to, it's quite an exhaustive list. It's quite an expansive list. You'll be blown away about the specific ministries of the Holy Spirit. Now, why is that so important to know how the Spirit works? Because as I said just a few minutes ago, revival is not some abracadabra, hocus-pocus thing. It is the intensification and the amplification of the routine and regular ministry of the Holy Spirit in a given locality. And I think it's important then to, to look at how he moves in general, the Holy Spirit, in the life of a believer. Because I would say to you that the Holy Spirit is often the forgotten member of the Trinity. Or at least the misunderstood member of the Trinity. So we need to understand his ministry. And then what's more, we need to understand how we are to respond to the work of the Holy Spirit in our life if we would want revival. So how does he work, number one, in connection to the word of God? But that leads to the second thing. He works through human instrumentality. Through human instrumentality. Let me, let me try and illustrate the point I'm trying to make. In evangelism, when we pray for God to save somebody... Are we praying that somebody would be walking uh, down the street and that a gospel tract would float down from heaven attached to a balloon? They would read it and say, oh, yeah, I want to trust Christ. Are, are we praying for them to get a text from heaven? I'm just asking an honest, a stupid question, but to make the point. Are we, are we praying that when we ask God to save somebody? No, we know that he's going to save them through human instrumentality, right? Now we're praying for their heart to be open, we're praying for the opportunity, we're praying for the boldness. And all I'm trying to say here is this, going back to my introductory message about 13 weeks ago, we need to avoid two ditches. Anybody remember those ditches? The ditch of manipulation, you find that in a lot of revivalism, but also, my reformed friends, the ditch of passivity. Well, if it's going to happen, it's going to happen. Oh, we can't manipulate God to be sure. The Spirit is sovereign, 
right? Because he's God and God is sovereign. And yet, we must avoid the ditch of passivity because we're responsible. Why else would we be commanded to be filled with the Spirit? Because we have the capacity by an act of our will not to be filled with the Spirit. Here in Ezekiel 37, four times Ezekiel is told to prophesy. And did you note the language when it says, he says, I did as I was commanded. He had a role. There was human instrumentality. And there was obedience. Verse 10, so I prophesied as I was commanded. And I think, you know, I, I, I preach and I, I minister to a given church, our church, right? Restore church. And when I think of the two ditches, I don't know that we're so vulnerable to the manipulation thing. I think we're more vulnerable to the passivity thing, honestly. We can't say, well, God is sovereign, and if it's going to happen, it's going to happen. That's called fatalism. And that is the distortion of the truth of God. You may have gotten that from a verse, but you didn't get that from the Bible. Do you know what I'm saying? The Bible never contradicts itself. Why else are we commanded to pray? Why else are we commanded to serve? Why else are we commanded to repent and to give and to believe? And as I said, to be filled and on and on and on. The Spirit works through human instrumentality. That's what I'm trying to say. Which leads to the third thing. How does the Spirit work? In connection to the Word of God, through human instrumentality, and third of all, this is tough, oftentimes and probably most times, very, very gradually. We want breakthrough. I do. Do you? We want, bam, it happens just like that. But do you remember in Ezekiel 37 how it actually went down? It was not all at once. There were stages, right? The bones stood up, the sinews came, uh, the flesh, the skin, but they were still dead bodies. There was a second work, right, in which the Spirit imparted that fresh life. We need to remember that. I need to remember that because that's the story of most of our conversions, right? Most of the conversions we'll experience, especially with younger people, is going to be that slow, still supernatural, but slow, gradual work. Very rarely do you see somebody, boom, they, they had no idea who Jesus was, and like five minutes later, they're on their face before him. It happens, right? Or even with, with reviving our hearts, sometimes we, we slowly decayed like a long fall, and we need a good spring to sprout new life, right? So we need to remember that because sometimes we can see boneyards in our own life, right? Boneyards in the life of somebody we love or someone in the church or someone we serve. And we think, I'm still bones. I'm still dry, dead bones. They still are bleached bones. It seems like nothing is happening. Don't remember, in a God's economy, the spirit often works gradually, but he is still working. And then fourth and finally, and this is the biggest truth of all. The Spirit works not just in connection to the Word of God, not just through human instrumentality primarily, not just mostly gradually, but fourth and finally, He works for God's glory. 
Three times in Ezekiel 37, he says this. What does he say? For the sake of my name, you shall know my name. You shall know my name. That's why he moves. Because oftentimes, pursuit of revival, let's just be honest, can be very self-centered. It can be very man-centric. All about our growth, church growth, personal growth, our breakthrough, our comfort, our name, our glory. But the Bible is pretty clear that pursuing our glory, even if no one else can see it, God sniffs it out, God sees it, and it causes him just to stand back and do nothing. God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Wow. That's, that's worth contemplating, right? That's convicting. The goal of revival must be the glory of God ultimately. That's why we're going to sing in just a moment about the glory of God. The ultimate cry of our hearts as we pursue revival must be that, must be that God would be glorified. And maybe, maybe that's the biggest thing we need to just seek right now. Maybe that's the biggest thing we need to pray about right now. God, would you give me a heart that wants you to be glorified above all else? It's not about my comfort. It's not about growth. It's not about breakthroughs. He'll bring growth. He will. He'll bring breakthroughs. He will. He might not bring you comfort. He might not bring me comfort. He might actually bring more discomfort. But if his glory is the chief end, then we'll say, Lord, do what you need to do to make your name famous in my life and in our life. And all that happened because of this foundational reality. It is the spirit that does what? Give life. Would you consider that this week? Would you look at that this week? Think about that this week. Pray about that this week. I want to put, in closing, two visions in your head. The one vision of, from Ezekiel 37 was a valley full of what? So what is the valley of dry, dead bones for you right now? What's that thing that just seems so lifeless, so dead, so hard, so desolate, so dry? What, what, what is that thing? Sometimes you just got to call it what it is, right? Call it what it is. So image one is, what is that valley of dry bones? And then image two, the spirit, the wind, the breath giving life. So you want to deal with the reality of what you're facing, but then the reality that there is a spirit who can give life even in the valley of the deepest, driest, deadest bones. We prayed before the service that we would not only be able to Affirm that intellectually between our ears, but truly embrace that in our heart. Father, thank you so much for this crazy story with this crazy prophet about the valley of dry bones. Thank you that you are the God who gives life to dry bones. Would you do that? Would you do that? Would you give us the faith to believe that? Um, Lord, would you cause us certainly to reject manipulation, but also to reject passivity. And even wanting you to move and to turn to you is because of the kindness of your spirit working. So spirit, would you revive our dead bones? I ask this in Jesus' name and for your glory, Father. Amen.